video killed the radio star, and the talkies killed vaudeville. But some legends never die, because they bend without effort as times change. We'll meet a dancer who made a series of graceful leaps from the Hippodrome all the way to Hollywood, next. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now, number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. The song you're listening to is a real special treat. It's called the Gertrude Hoffman Glide from 1913. It's a two-step that's named after the subject of today's conversation. And when I go back into the archives and look for some music to use for each week's show, it's always a stunner when I find something that not only is related, not only that's maybe performed by the person, but in this case, that her husband wrote for her and that you could have bought in the Sears catalog in 1913 and enjoyed right at home. That gives you some idea of how special and famous at the time was Gertrude Hoffman. Joining us in our time machine is the Hargis Associate Professor of American Literature at Auburn University, Sunny Stalter Pace. She brings us Imitation Artist, Gertrude Hoffman's Life in Vaudeville and Dance. Sunny Stalter Pace received her PhD from my alma mater, Rutgers University, and her BA from Loyola University, Chicago. Her previous book is Underground Movements, Modern Culture on the New York City Subway. You can find our guest online at SunnyStalterPace.com or SLStalter on Twitter. Our subject was born in 1883 as Catherine Gertrude Hay. She broke into show business as a mimic, copying the highbrow performances from European artists and popularizing them for a broader American audience. She started as a pantomime ballet girl in the gay 90s, made the jump into vaudeville, and later worked as a choreographer and teacher, living well into the 1960s. That is a long career and a long life, and one that saw a lot of change. Okay, now that we've found our seat in the Hippodrome on 6th Avenue, let's join Sonny Stalter Pace and witness the sublime, funny, groundbreaking and sometimes fourth wall breaking talent of Gertrude Hoffman, the legendary imitation artist. I'm joined on the line by Sonny Stalter Pace, author of Imitation Artist, Gertrude Hoffman's Life in Vaudeville and Dance. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Thanks so much, Dean. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you, happy to talk about Gertrude Hoffman and her life in vaudeville and dance, and especially since you're just kicking off your promotion for this book to discuss her life story. And she strikes me as the type of figure that she's still going to entertain us. She's still going to grab our hands and she'll be the one who's doing the carrying for us. She'll be doing the heavy lifting because she has a life full of so many wow moments. So I wanted to start off by letting people know a little bit about you because you're our very first Jeopardy champion on the History Author Show. That got me to thinking that there has to be something that takes a lot of persistence and a lot of dedication, not to mention a lot of knowledge here to win on the ultimate quiz show. So I wanted to ask you to fold that into your experience writing Imitation Artist and also Gertrude's life. How does the discipline required to win on Jeopardy apply to writing a book on the wide-ranging topic of, as your subhead reads, Gertrude Hoffman's life in vaudeville and dance? Wow, that's a great way to start. (laughs) 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 The difficulty with Jeopardy is not winning, it's getting on. Persistence is absolutely right. It took me four tries over more than 20 years. The first time I tried out was sending in a postcard for the teen tournament. But over the course of 
years and years, I did the online tests and did the in-person interviews, figured out how to tell a good story for that commercial break and coming back to talk to Alex. And I think the one thing that I'd say makes a good Jeopardy champion is knowing a little bit about everything. And that helps with someone like Gertrude Hoffman, who really has skills and abilities and interests in so many different facets of early 20th century culture, you know, with dance and she loved collecting poetry in her journals and she loved comedy and she paid attention to everything. So that kind of wide ranging knowledge helped me know the references in her diaries and things. So I think persistence, knowing a good anecdote when you hear it, and having a wide base of knowledge to draw on are both things that Jeopardy and writing a biography of this awesome woman have in common. Most listeners probably won't have heard of her. I think if she came up there on Final Jeopardy, she might stump two out of three people. The third person wasn't you anyway. So bring us into her performances cold. Say we're showing up at the Hippodrome. Say we're going to another theater and we're going to watch her perform, say, The Merry Widow. What are you excited about us seeing when the curtains arise? Okay, so one of the most important things, I think, is just in general, giving the context of a vaudeville bill. So knowing that it's not going to be a full narrative play, that it's a bunch of different acts, um, maybe about a dozen, that it might start with something more visual, maybe acrobats or an animal act. But by the time Gertrude Hoffman's suing the Merry Widow, she's got a pretty good reputation. She'll have a pretty good place on the bill. If it's something on a main vaudeville stage, she'd maybe be the last act that appeared before the intermission. She also did a lot of performances in roof gardens, which wouldn't have started until after the main theatrical program was done. So maybe not until really late. But The Merry Widow was a spoof of the operetta that was extremely popular in New York at the time. And it was one of several acts, even in her section of the bill. She was multi-talented, so she would do some imitations of famous celebrities of the time. She might sing a song. And then for the Merry Widow act, she... She had a costume and a hairstyle, so she looked like the main female character in The Merry Widow. And she had a dance partner who was dressed up like the main male character in The Merry Widow. And all they did was the Merry Widow waltz, but they did it over and over and over again. They did it over and over again in different styles. They waltzed separately. They waltzed together. They did a ragtime version of the waltz. So really by the time Gertrude Hoffman is performing The Merry Widow, she's commenting as much on the Merry Widow craze in New York City as she is on the actual show. The words imitation and artist in your cover come naturally off of that because they can seem in conflict. We think of the artist as the person who does their own thing, who's original, who changes. And that's the case with her, but she's learning from other people. And that's actually the case with almost everybody. I know when I interviewed Bijan C. Bain about his book, Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball, he was, the first one was Elgin Baylor. And you have many people, Michael Jordan, who came after saying that I copied him, but he didn't copy anybody. He really changed the game with many things like inventing hang time, which we associate with basketball right now. Now, that's not an artist in the sense of somebody who's doing dance, but as far as being an original, everybody builds on somebody else to some extent. I mean, even 
Even Elgin Baylor had to have somebody invent the game, right? The Abbott and Costello, you hear guys from vaudeville that go back to vaudeville. They didn't invent who's on first. If you hear from old vaudevillians or old people who study the history of vaudeville, they'll tell you they did it better than anyone else. They made it their own. They really adapted it. And that's what happened. In fact, I think they used to say that the only crime was if you did someone's material better, but everyone expected you to borrow jokes and share bits and test them out and see what you could do almost like playing hamlet if you play your version of hamlet in a play nobody accuses you of ripping off sir lawrence olivier or ripping off shakespeare it's your interpretation of it and i guess that's what i got here from reading about gertrude hoffman she was working with what other people did and then putting a spin and changing it and adapting it and finding a way to make it speak for her so how does what you call the paradox of gertrude hoffman Help her get her foot in the door so that she does have that room to breathe and grow as an artist and find her own voice on stage. Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that art and whether we're talking about, you know, vaudeville skits or basketball, tap dancing is another very notable art that's built so much on borrowing imitation and addition. And Gertrude Hoffman is very much of her time. She she became famous during a time when vaudeville was going through what was called the imitation craze. So that could be imitating celebrities. That could be imitating the accents of people from all of the boroughs of New York City. It could be imitating, you know, just any kind of imitation was seen as interesting and impressive. And Gertrude Hoffman had done, you know, some work in musical comedy. She had gotten a certain amount of fame in San Francisco as a girl in the chorus and moved to New York. And she could dance, she could sing, she could arrange a stage picture. But the thing that really took her to the next level was finally figuring out how to do comic imitations. And the place where that really clicked for her was she did an imitation of Eddie Foy, Eddie Foy Sr. And that was something where she had gone out and gotten a couple of additions to her costume. And she really figured out how to nail it and got the instant reaction from the audience that told her, yeah, this is what you're really good at. And that was around the time that her husband, Max Hoffman, had started working on a new show that Florence Ziegfeld was going to produce for Anne Held, who was his partner at the time. They always worked together as a couple for almost their whole entire life. And Max Hoffman had tried and tried to get a part for Gertrude in this Anne Held play called The Parisian Model. And, you know, they couldn't find a place for her. They figured out, okay, she knows how to dance. Maybe we'll give her a dance number. This is one of my favorite stories just because it sounds like, you know, something from Busby Berkeley. She supposedly, you never know with Gertrude, (laughs) was doing an imitation of Anna Held to make other people in the cast laugh. And then Anna Held walked in on her and, you know, everybody went silent She thought she was going to be fired from the show. But Anna Held said, oh, no, you should do this other song instead. We'll get you we'll get you on the program doing this other song before I come out. That'll be really good. (laughs) And they were really good friends after that, even after Zigfield married Billy Burke and Anna Held, her career kind of plateaued and then went down. But yeah, they were they were always really good friends because they had a really good sense of their own personalities. And Anna Held had a really good sense of how Gertrude's imitation kind of set her off. You mentioned Max Hoffman, Gertrude's husband. He composed the song that I played in the introduction, the Gertrude Hoffman Glide. 
I was impressed when I read that they had such a long marriage because we tend to think of showbiz folks as living outside a committed relationship, as having maybe being serial monogamous, as we might call them today. Maybe it's my bias, having read a lot about vaudeville, and I, you know, don't trust show folks, right? They used to say, sure. and you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to marry a chorus girl. You wouldn't want your son to marry one anyway. Jackie Gleason marrying one girl from the chorus after another back in those days. And yet they have a 60 plus year, not just marriage, but professional collaboration. So how did the two of them fit together? I love Gertrude and Max's relationship. They met when he was a music director for an early show she was in that she traveled with back from San Francisco on the way to New York. He got his start in Chicago And apparently this is something I kind of heard tell of after the book had already been finished, but Max may have been married to somebody else before, but not for a super long time. But they got married um, when she was very young. She had to lie about her age on the marriage certificate to be over 18, but they really clicked. He was really well known as a ragtime composer and arranger. And she was really experienced in the kind of physical side of things and dance and arranging groups of girls on stage. And they ended up being a really good package deal where somebody could hire them to work together on a roof garden show, for example, on a new musical comedy and kind of have all the different parts of the production worked out between the two of them. And then later she was more famous and he ended up being mostly her music director, but also sort of her manager advocating for her. Yeah, it was just a great partnership. She knew about older forms of performance, the kind of big pageants and pantomimes. And he knew about newer forms of music like ragtime. And they they really fit together. It's nice. They click nicely together, especially when times are changing so much and it would be easy to be pulled or pushed, especially when you have a couple that are both in the same business. Sometimes that can lead to rivalries and jealousies and problems. And not to mention you're out on the road. It's just a tough business. So that tells you something about Gertrude Hoffman right here, the woman we're going to meet in Imitation Artist. You talked about the roof gardens. I mentioned the Hippodrome a couple of times. And those may sound very different to modern New Yorkers because right now, if you want to see the Hippodrome, what you have to do is walk down 6th Avenue on the east side. What is it? 43rd, I guess. And you walk down 6th Avenue and there's a bank there now, but they do have a lovely mural inside of what the Hippodrome used to look like. So that's what you have to do. So that's the era. And that is something that is hinted in in my 1925 song that I use as a theme here on the History Author Show, New York Ain't New York Anymore, and they talk about all the changing styles of the city. Something that you wrapped into Imitation Artist here is you talk about the creative destruction of New York City and how that mirrored Gertrude's rise. And if you look back at those old pictures of the skyline of New York, you see how much it changes in just 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years, especially after the Great War, which is the point that's made in that song. So describe how the two reflected each other. And was there an aha moment that that hit you? Or did it just seem obvious that here's the city changing and she's changing with it? Well, my first book was about New York, too. It was about modern literature and the New York City subway. So that's kind of my happy place, thinking about early 20th century New York. But really, the aha moment for me was reading in her diaries when she talked about arriving in New York before... Times Square was Times Square. Before Times Square was the even Longacre Square, when it was just horse stables and a couple of restaurants and a couple of theaters. And she always really admired Oscar Hammerstein the first because she saw him as a kind of pioneer in that area of New York City, building it up as a theatrical capital. 
Gertrude and Max lived in the Times Square area, and there's their son, Max Jr. And they lived at a boarding house. And when I was looking at old, it was probably the New York Times online, but I realized that they were living in a boarding house around Times Square the year, the new year when Longacre Square was named Times Square for the New York Times building. So that just seemed to be a really cool moment of realizing that they're, you know, that they're growing up at the same time that this part of the city is growing up around them. It is a great time of change, and Longacre Square is one of the things mentioned there, name-checked, along with many of the restaurants that they would have been frequenting in that song. So if Max hadn't done us the favor of scripting a song for his wife (laughs) and having the Gertrude Hoffman glide to use at the top of the interview, New York Ain't New York Anymore would have fit perfectly with the theme of change in the city always pushing ahead and trying to adapt and become better and different and take people from all over the world, in Gertrude Hoffman's case, take styles from all over the world and adapt them, make them our own. Because it's hard to overstate the earth-shaking transformations in the case of things like digging the subway and putting up the those skyscrapers, getting the foundations there. Anyone who's ever walked past a construction site in New York City or had one, heaven forbid, being built next to your studio, as we had at the iHeartRadio building recently across from Carnegie Hall, you know, they're hammering, hammering those pylons into the ground to try to anchor that skyscraper. So the ground is literally changing and shaking around her. And she's constantly shaking the foundations of her performances, of her skills. She goes from vaudeville and Victorian pantomime all the way through to more modern entertainment. She participated in so much change. It seems that you would find her in any number of disciplines. Anybody would say, well, I can drop in on this little piece of her life and cover her here or there. How did she fall out of the pages of history? Yeah, that was what I wondered when I found out about her, actually. I thought, wait, there's a woman who did a bootleg version of the Ballet Russe and toured it across America before the original company came here from Paris? (laughs) How have I not heard of that before? It's amazing. And one of the things that I tried to draw out, you know, with having such great resources from her diaries that are held at the Wake Forest Special Collections, she was really thinking about how she was going to be remembered or trying to ensure that she would be remembered because she lived through the end of vaudeville and saw, okay, so some people are going into burlesque and some people are going on the radio. She ended up going this sort of nightclub pathway that's where all the flash acts tended to go like if you could stage dance routines and really nice spectacles then you could go into you know staging a floor show or nightclub full of chorus girls so yeah she was thinking about that she was writing about that she was cutting out newspaper clippings about biopics that were going to be made about different vaudeville stars. And I think what she realized, or at least what I realized looking at her process, was that so much of the history we know of that period is based on what got memorialized after World War II. So in the kind of MGM musicals, you know, not just Yankee Doodle Dandy or something earlier, but the kind of glossy musicals from the 50s that are looking back on that period, like a singing in the rain kind of thing. And she doesn't end up being part of those histories. So yeah, it's interesting. It's been interesting to recover. You mentioned some names in there that people will recognize. Hammerstein, Ziegfeld, Schubert, Josephine Baker, Ethel Barrymore. These are people who all appear as contemporaries throughout Imitation Artist, throughout Gertrude Hoffman's life. I thought of Josephine Baker as soon as you talked about the nightclub scene. What will readers learn about those figures from Broadway's golden age? Yeah, well, my favorite thing that I figured out about Ziegfeld was that he threatened to sue Max Hoffman for 
this is a little bit of backstory for this, but basically when Gertrude Hoffman left the Parisian model, Max Hoffman left too, and he had been under contract to write the music before Ziegfeld came on. So he took all the copies of the score out of the building. (laughs) And, you know, they didn't have backups or anything. So (laughs) he took the copies of the score out of the building as a bargaining chip to say, no, you need to keep me on as the music director. You need to pay me throughout, you know, through this certain period of time. And Ziegfeld had him thrown in jail. (laughs) The trial ended up working out in the Hoffman's favor. Ziegfeld was trying to prosecute him for basically stealing the paper that the score was printed on. (laughs) Because the the music did actually belong to Max Hoffman. He wrote it under contract for a different person. That was kind of one of the moments when I realized like, wow, they, they really had guts, you know? And let's see, uh, <laughs> Ethel Barrymore as an actress, she comes up in a couple of fun stories. I don't know why Gertrude Hoffman really liked doing kind of savage imitations of Ethel Barrymore, maybe because she was taken more seriously as an actress. And that's something that Gertrude Hoffman always, you know, secretly wanted and never really got. But she liked to do imitations of Ethel Barrymore from before and after she had a baby. So she would show her, you know, acting before and then getting her baby, taking care of her baby, getting bored, throwing, you know, the doll baby backstage (laughs) and then going back into a soliloquy or something. (laughs) It's already funny. This is what I meant when I said Gertrude Hoffman would take over the interview, even though she's not here. You can just picture it. And once you've seen a few pictures, like the stunning picture of her, that's a lot of fun, a lot of detail on the cover of Imitation Artist, you can picture her doing these things. She really comes to life. It must have been really a blast to live with her for the time you were writing the book. Oh, it absolutely was. I never had imagined myself as a biographer, but finding all of these materials and just really getting a sense of her voice, getting a sense of her humor and her style. Yeah, I don't want to say it wrote itself because it was hard and it took a long time, but it was a pleasure to figure out the ins and outs of her life. It's nice because I I didn't ask you, usually I do, but that's part of that pull that she has to get right into my story. Don't ask. Don't ask the biographer any questions about herself. I'm not saying she was someone who didn't want to share the spotlight, but she's just so compelling that I didn't even ask when you discovered her. How did you come across her? How did you take this unlikely route to becoming a biographer of Gertrude Hoffman? Well, it was because of the New York subway, actually. I thought that my second book, was going to be, my first book was about the subway in in literature in kind of a broad sense, some poetry, some fiction, some drama. And the second book, I wanted to stick with the subway and really go into looking at plays that were set on the New York City subway. And I was kind of noodling around on the New York Public Library, the site that has all these digital documents on it looking for subway plays and found a program, a vaudeville program that talked about a tango at a subway entrance and thought, oh, that sounds really cool. Who did that? Saw that it was Gertrude Hoffman, looked her up and just totally got sucked in to her story. So yeah, it's the subway that got me there. (laughs) How great is that? I I take the A train in my head. You got on the Gertrude train and she just took you on this ride. Yeah, exactly. There was one thing that jumped out of me from the book that I think will be of interest to modern listeners. And that's that this is the age of minstrel shows to some degree or another in New York City, dressing up as people of other races. And this is something that we even had Catherine Hepburn do in one movie that is pretty universally panned now. And it was... It was part of those performances, and she does perform at one point, there's a picture in Imitation Artist, in brown makeup from head to toe. So I wanted to ask you about the context of that, and how should people look at her expression 
today as modern readers who may view that as really distasteful or who may not understand that that was part of the way that people would perform back in the vaudeville days and what the opposition to her shows would have been when she did that at the time for other reasons because she was always an artist that people were I don't know if you'd say recoiling at, but there was always critics, right? That's why they call them critics, because they were critical. And uh, I really love the hard time that she gave them, how she gave them fits. So what would are the things that have been that were controversial about her at the time? And what do you think about the acts that she did when she would put on the makeup to darken her skin? Yeah, that's something that my original editor at Northwestern University Press had really encouraged me to think about. And I think it added a lot of depth to my consideration of Hoffman's performances to think about how she's working within the racial stereotypes of the time. The the first thing I should say that I think is troubling, but also super fascinating is what she was opposed for, the things she got into trouble with in her shows was nudity. Female nudity was always the most troubling part of her show to people in that time. Dancing barefoot, dancing with bare legs and no tights on. That was always the thing that made her scandalous. The brown face and black face was not seen so much as being troubling at that time. She used blackface in her imitations of performers who performed in blackface, including Burt Williams, who was from the Caribbean and who was black. But the brown face, that was all about, she was very enraptured with a kind of Arabian Nights type stereotypes of the Middle East. And her head to toe brown face was for playing the role of the beautiful slave of fateful enchantment in a pantomime called Sumerun that was based on a story from the Arabian Nights. So it's something that I didn't want to shy away from. And I don't want to say like, oh, it's okay at that time. No, it never was. But this was a way that white women in the early 20th century could sort of play dress up and get to be sexier or get to be get to be different than what they were allowed to be on stage. So and it ends up being used in that way in a lot of her performances. It reminds me of Robert Downey Jr. who dons the black makeup in Tropic Thunder. I think the dividing line for people, why we accept something like that today, because that's a recent movie, right? That's not talking vaudeville, is if the joke is not just, well, I have dark skin or, oh, the joke is that I have a funny accent or a different accent or what have you. And that's what always bothers me. Like I see some comedians that even are just, they'll play that up and they may be of a certain ethnicity. And that's their whole joke is I'm foreign man. And foreign man was a popular caricature that they would do through various mediums. And so I think eventually you have to you have to move beyond that because that's not really funny. And today, right. today, that's not enough. We don't want to laugh at somebody just because they're different. We want to embrace that, embrace their styles. And I feel like that's the important part of her is that she would want to imitate the styles and things. She wasn't doing that. She was doing that as part of the illusion she was creating. It wasn't that, oh, now I'm going to play a stereotypical mammy or something. Absolutely. And that becomes even more and more prevalent in the later part of her career when she's a dance teacher. She's super fascinated by the rise of ethnic dance, Spanish dance after the war. She's always wanting to figure out how these different styles work. You're enjoying my conversation with Sonny Stalter Pace, author of Imitation Artist, Gertrude Hoffman's Life in Vaudeville and Dance. It's a life and she's a person that's so full of energy that I feel as if she's right here in the studio with me at the moment that she has her hand on our shoulders and she's she's pointing and she wants us to do things. It's it's a very almost ghost-like experience to have her. She's so full of life 
And in fact, one of the things that I should mention is that she owned a Harley Davidson motorcycle. So if there's anything you can think of that gets you more independent and more pulse racing than driving a Harley around, that's what this character was doing. That's what this woman was doing as she was developing all of these ways to take styles and routines from all over the world and make them her own for American audiences. You can visit our guest at SunnyStalterPace.com or follow her at SLStalter on Twitter. Marlis Schweitzer, author of When Broadway Was the Runway, Theater, Fashion, and American Culture, writes of imitation artist Stalter Pace takes readers on a journey through her subject's personal and professional history as a Broadway choreographer, dancer, director, producer, and imitation artist. We meet a woman who wasn't afraid to flout convention, challenge taboos, and assert her rights as an artist. There is so much to Gertrude Hoffman's life other than vaudeville, although that's where she starts off, and that's just a real blast for me. But she has that list of accomplishments that shows us just how varied she was and how much there is for people to sink their teeth into in imitation artists. You include several reviews of her performances throughout the book, often by critics annoyed by her nonconformity. They just can't get their minds around trying to bang a round peg into a square hole with her. In fact, uh, one is outraged that she paints stockings on her legs. You mentioned before that they didn't like her nudity. This critic says, well, you can either have nude legs or you can have coverings on your legs, wear a dress or wear pants or something, but you can't, you can't do both. You can't paint. What are you doing? And I found that especially amusing in light of the racial component we mentioned, because one of the reasons that women would go and darken their skin or try to appear as somebody who was from another race is that was seen as somehow more acceptable to sexualize them. In fact, during the Civil War, when men would pass around their version of pornography at the time, or I guess it was pornography, it would be exclusively people that were not Anglo-Saxon, that were not white. That's one of the reasons that she's doing that, which I think adds a little more context to the idea of her darkening her skin. I wanted to ask you for your favorite version, if you have one, of Gertrude Hoffman bucking convention and pushing her own artistic expression on a world that was often telling her, well, hey, you can't do that. <laughs> I think it's probably her work with the Ballet Russe because, you know, it would have been really easy, especially after her Salome dance routine, you know, her dance of the seven veils to get pegged as somebody who liked being naked as somebody who liked flaunting her sexuality. And there's definitely something about that in the Ballet Russe, but it's just this whole production. You know, she thought of herself as a director and a stage manager from a very early age. So when she went to Paris and saw these Russian ballets being performed with amazing costuming and amazing set design, and super innovative choreography and music. She wanted to recreate that whole effect. So the fact that she didn't just take the comic route or take the sexy route, but also wanted to bring in the highbrow stuff from Paris that she loved too, I think that's really boundary pushing and interesting. And even with the painted on stockings, those were supposedly designs that had been imagined by Leon Bax, who was one of the designers for the Ballet Russe. It may just have been a kind of publicity stunt to say that he did that. There's not a ton of support for that thesis. But the thing that I love the most about Gertrude Hoffman is the way that she combines things that we think of as popular performance and things that we think of as elevated art. And she just sees it all as something to work with and something to riff on. I mentioned your cover photo of Gertrude Hoffman on Imitation Artist. 
Where does this come from? Because you are fortunate that you had a lot of photos of her in various outfits, always looking different, always reinventing herself. She's the great mimic, right? So really good news for a biographer. You get to put a lot of those pictures in there. And then I imagine the other side of that is it's a challenge to decide on a cover. I really like this photograph. I think it's good for the cover because she's looking right at us and she's engaging us. She's really has a, a stare that holds your eye. And I, you can see this person's a performer. This person has a lot going on behind those eyes. How did you choose that photo of her and describe it a little bit for us? I did not choose the cover photo. So thanks to the designer for that. But I gave them a selection of photos that I thought would be good. And a lot of them were from around the same time period as the one they ended up choosing. It's from around 1914 when they were doing From Broadway to Paris. And this is a period when she, you know, really combines the glamour and the humor and the exoticism together. And I think that picture really reveals it. You described her gaze at the viewer very, very evocatively. She's standing against a tile wall. She's got on kind of a feathery costume, feathery spangly costume, and her feet are bare. And I love the little smile she has too, because it seems like she maybe thinks it's a little bit of a joke that even in the midst of wearing this and posing this way, she doesn't take herself entirely seriously. That's what the critics of her Salome performance that I tend to agree with the most said too, that it was showing this kind of elegant performance and then deconstructing it at the same time. You write in Imitation Artist, quote, Gertrude Hoffman's act embodied the contradictions of U.S. culture during World War I. How did she cope with the privations, the repression of civil rights, the pandemic that comes after the war, and prohibition to keep her star rising through the Roaring Twenties? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting time to think about what she went through in the midst of the Great War and after the war, she got the Spanish flu in the second wave of the pandemic. And one of the things I really that really struck me when I was doing research for this period in her life is reading old copies of Variety when they started listing the names of vaudeville performers that enlisted in the war, listing the names of vaudeville performers who died in the war, and then started listing the names of vaudeville performers who were sick with influenza and who died of influenza. It was just, it really brought it home to see how it would have affected this community so directly. One of the other things that I thought was really interesting about how she responded to the war. <laughs> there were a lot of things that vaudeville performers were asked to do during the Great War. They had to give up a lot. They couldn't have as many chorus boys, had to have a lot more chorus girls instead because the chorus boys were enlisting. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So she ended up bringing her son she and Max Hoffman Sr.'s son, Max Jr., into their act. He was a young teenager, 14, I think, who was enrolled in a military school. And although I couldn't find any confirmation one way or the other, my secret suspicion is that they brought Max Jr. into the act so he wouldn't lie about his age and enlist Huh, that makes sense. <laughs> because he did a lot of other wild stuff as a young man that makes me think he was the kind of kid who would have done something like that. <laughs> a 
I wonder where he got that from. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I told you, those carny folks and the vaudevillians, <laughs> they live pretty crazy lives. Every time I move into a new apartment or a new house or something, I always look up what was there before. And I found a similar story in the Korean War. A kid about what you're telling me was Max Hoffman Jr.'s age. He enlisted in Korea. He was about, you know, so 14 years old, 15, but a real big kid, obviously, for his age. And he ended up all he ended up making it through training before his parents find him and all the way over to Korea. Wow. Or before they before they realized it was him and brought him back. And then, of course, since we're fortunate to be in the future, I was able to track him down later in life. And once he was old enough, the he got a nice letter from MacArthur or whoever it was saying, take him in the military academy when he's old enough. And he did. He enlisted. He ended up rising through the ranks and uh, serving in various conflicts after the Korean War. And he buried with honors at Arlington and lived a long career, but he had to wait. So I, I could see why you would try to stop a kid. It may sound like it would be impossible to enlist, but some 14-year-olds are real tall and big for their age. So maybe Max Hoffman would have been. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So instead he had to sing a song while there was a <laughs> vaudeville fashion show. It beats the trenches, right? Yeah, you think so. <laughs> By a mile. Gertrude Hoffman was the first woman credited for dance direction in a Broadway show, which I thought was a nice little feather in her hat, no pun intended, considering she's wearing all those feathers on the cover of Imitation Artist. By 1923, she reaches what you call a turning point, and until World War II comes along, we find her acting as choreographer, producer, and den mother to the Gertrude Hoffman girls. That was something else that defied expectations, because when we think of somebody whose career in something as personal, as athletic, as dance, somebody who's reveling in being a little scantily clad up there, you think of them looking askance at people who are coming after them. They don't want to help anybody. There's many people like that. I've found to varying degrees, sometimes I'll help a young person learn how to do something, and they're surprised because... They had people that are afraid they're going to take their jobs, that just don't want to take the time to help them. And I always try to be willing to help. I like that about her. I said, here she's finding a new way to reinvent herself yet again, even after her body is not going to be able to do those performances anymore. How did she make that transition? How did she jump into that? Was it because she already had Max there because she was already doing it all those years because she was producing for herself? She was able to produce for her girls? What kind of a den mother was she, as you put it? Yeah, she had always taught and managed the dancers on stage with her. There's a story about even when she was really early in her career, when she was a teenager herself and in the chorus of one of the operas in San Francisco that she was the line leader and the one who taught the movements to the other girls who carried spears in the line with her. So that was just something that was a part of her personality from an early age. And by 1923, you know, vaudeville is definitely waning and kind of last gasp, the thing that replaces it for a little bit is the review and reviews had tons and tons of female dancers. So she ended up founding a school where she taught dance. She worked with a guy who was trained in acrobatics and um, she taught these women different dance styles to make them marketable in reviews and different bookings that they could get in the city. And I think that was that was the place where she could still make an artistic intervention into the scene. You know, she had acts that the Gertrude Hoffman girls did that she choreographed. There were things that were hardly even considered dance. They had a fencing act. And they had acts that were like what people do on aerial silks right now. So it was just a way of kind of stretching her creative muscles when she wasn't still being the person on stage. When she can't be a person on stage anymore, it's because, as happens to any dancer, your body eventually wears down. Having worked for 
well, 20 years, gee, over Radio City Music Hall. I know that there's many rockets. I know one in particular, and that's a lot of jumping and dancing on those hardwood floors. So eventually your knees, your body will wear out. While performing her Anne Pennington imitation at the Alhambra Theater on the New Year's Eve show, Gertrude Hoffman suffers an injury. Now, I wanted to ask you, how did that moment impact and coincide with the death of the vaudeville system? Because you talked before, or we talked, about how the city rising and falling and being creatively deconstructed mirrored her career. So how does that slide out of the vaudeville system? How does its losing popularity and market share, as we'd say today, to other forms of new entertainment reflect her final years in vaudeville? Well, I think that marks the period when she really goes back to being a dancer, to being a dance teacher. She really champions the Americanization of ballet. So, you know, even though she's working to popularize Russian ballet in the very early 20th century, by the 1920s, there are Russians who were over in New York and really moving between working in a popular arena like a hippodrome show and doing concert dance. And that's the model she saw that she really longed for herself. So one of the things that she does is she starts thinking about, okay, how can I get into these more serious artistic forms of dance? When you're someone who isn't brought up doing ballet, that's not really something that you can take up at 30 and be really good at. But she starts working with people who do that. She starts working with people who promote dance in America and dance as an American value and American art. So yeah, I think the twisting her ankle when she's trying to do the black bottom dance that Ann Pennington famously danced, that ends up being the period when she starts moving away from popular dance and more toward thinking about ballet and actually eventually modern dance in the period too. You write in imitation artist, quote, even after her long career had effectively ended, she still filled her journals with ideas for skits, monologues, and stage routines for former Hoffman girls. That reminded me of Stan Laurel, another contemporary of the vaudeville scene, who wrote team bits even after Oliver Hardy had passed away. He's still thinking of ways to do funny movies with the Oliver and Hardy team. And I thought that that was something that's really poignant, where you're still writing, you're still creating, even if you know no one will ever perform them. What are some of her unpublished works, and were there any of them that you would like to have seen performed? Yeah, I loved looking at the kind of things that she would have performed if she still had a venue for performing it. And I just said that she moved away from, you know, away from the comedy and toward just focusing on the dance. The last sketches in her journals really do move back toward the comedy, thinking about, okay, so which popular actresses of 1939 would I want to imitate. She has one that I think would be really fascinating. It's She calls it a one-woman fashion show where she tries to imagine all of the different expats and refugees in New York cafe society during the war and how she would convey all of them in a fashion show. So it's just really interesting the way she starts thinking about the way she sees the world changing and how she starts thinking about how she'd respond to it with her routines. Speaking of performers that came along later, I thought that it was a really nice cameo, for lack of a better word, when Gertrude Hoffman tries to interest Lucille Ball in doing her life story. And you say that even though Lucy may have done a little bit of everything herself, that that made it a challenge, or not that Lucy shot away from a challenge, but it was hard for one person to embody her, but I thought that that was interesting. That must have been a nice little nugget for you to stumble across, I guess, in her personal letters, her writing writing to Lucy, asking her about performing or maybe doing a version of her life story. That's something I would have loved to have seen. 
Yeah, it was amazing to find. And the thing that made it even more moving is it was a draft of the letter. So I don't know if it was ever sent. I tried finding some stuff out on the other side and, you know, found out that Lucy had been considered for a couple of different kind of nostalgic stories about that period, like even a Fanny Bryce role or, you know, the stock company role. But looking at this letter, you know, the first page is written out in this handwriting that I know really well. And then the second page of the draft is written in pencil on a paper napkin. And for some reason, that was just so moving to me that it was just so fragile and that, you know, I had this sense of just something that had been sitting on her desk that she grabbed to write on. It really gave me a sense of her as a person trying to make sure that she was remembered. Well, she's certainly remembered now, thanks to Imitation Artist. I hope people will pick up the book and enjoy her as much as I've enjoyed getting to know her. It's time for the curtain call, but I wanted to squeeze in one final question for you. What do you hope modern readers and modern performers or people in any discipline will learn about perfecting their craft and from changing and being nimble and adaptive from reading Imitation Artist? Um, I think that the takeaway for artists is that copying other people's work always leads you to figure out something about yourself, that you can't make an exact copy, and that by imitating, you pick up a sense of how a work is put together, and you get a sense of your own style, too. I'm a teacher, so that's my takeaway. And maybe also one of the reasons I like Gertrude so much is she has that teaching element to her career. But thinking about the way imitation leads you to figure out how art works and what your own style is. Well, Sunny Stalter-Pace, author of Imitation Artist, thank you so much for introducing me to this fascinating dancer, artist, and mimic, as well as teacher. She wears so many hats, not just that feathered one. She was always changing, and that makes for a great book. Talk about somebody who's engaging the reader at every page. Every time you change the chapter, I was finding her wearing a new hat, literally and figuratively, and really kept my interest. I enjoyed it so much. You write that Gertrude Hoffman never settled on one identity, but thanks to your book and thanks to all your effort going through all those notes and all those cocktail napkins with notes jotted on them, we can get to know the woman underneath those feathered sequined outfits, underneath the makeup and the leg paint. I hope listeners will pick up your book and enjoy this long, wonderful dance with Gertrude Hoffman. Thanks so much. Again, the book is Imitation Artist, Gertrude Hoffman's Life in Vaudeville and Dance. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. By buying books through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Sonny Stalter-Pace for joining us and for giving a transformational, talented mimic the place in history she so richly deserves. Visit SunnyStalterPace.com for more on today's guest, or follow her at SLStalter on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, Instagram at the History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. You can also dig into our archives for more Gilded Age fun. And remember, we now have a YouTube channel. So if you'd like to listen there, we try to be everywhere you'd want to be. And remember, we have a YouTube channel now with our full archive of almost 200 interviews. We try to be everywhere you'd want to be. That's it for this vaudeville installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for two-step time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Standing alone, I 
saw Georgie Cone somewhere on Long Acre Square. Crowds passed him by, I heard Georgie sigh, nobody noticed him there. I asked him why he didn't smile, he said in that old Cohen style, Oh, New York ain't New York anymore, how I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor, where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of 